to Soul Knox Podcast, and I'm your host, Carl Hikara, and uh, this is episode number 29, I believe, um, and um, we're almost at the big uh, 30, yep, so we're moving along, I realized we've been going for, I think um, I think now it'll be over six months, I, th- I do believe, so it's been, been a minute, um, it's gone by pretty quick, to be honest, and uh, it's great. Uh, this week, um, got a, a another cool episode as part two of what I started last week. Uh, last week, I did the uh, the ex- uh, Exorcist with my friend Mike Purdy, and this week, my good friend Jackie Smith is uh, joining me for Exorcist three. So yeah, so it's kind of one-two punch of the only two Exorcist movies that you really need to watch, and um, and yeah, this movie is one of Jackie's favorite movies. It, it was kind of his idea to cover it, anyways, and kind of kicked off the whole project. So uh, yeah, I'm glad that we did it. We have a few other um, a few other movie. Uh, we got one movie option, another thing coming up that he and I will be doing in the future. But yeah, this this time is uh it's just a uh episode where we talk about Exorcist 3 and um it's a real good uh, good episode and uh I think y'all going to enjoy it and um yeah, it's a really good celebration of a great movie that is often overlooked or underrated that I think is a fucking classic. So yep, and of course for those who don't know, I I suppose like it's kind of like I just assume people know, but Jackie Smith is the host of the um, the best extreme metal podcast out there, which is called Into the Necrosphere. And of course, Jackie Smith and Into the Necrosphere are part of the uh, Horsemen of the Podcast Apocalypse, their little brotherhood of uh, like-minded podcasts that we got going on. So since I brought that up, I'm going to go ahead and shout it out. On Mondays, we got Whore Wolf 666 with uh, Brandon Legion. Tuesdays we got Jackie Smith with Into the Necrosphere. On uh, Wednesdays we got Mike Hill with Everything Went Black. On Thursdays we have Mike Hill, Mike Scandato, and Jack, um, sorry, and Jeff Kashid with um, uh, with Necromaniacs. And then kind of the unofficial horsemen. Uh, intermediate times we have Cheyenne from Trivax with Iblis Manifestations. So yeah. Go check out all those podcasts. Follow them on social media and on your podcast app. And give everybody five stars if you can. And, you know, just do the whole thing. And um, you can follow me on uh, Instagram at um, Denver Underground Radio or Carl Hikara. That's K-A-R-L-H-A-I-K-A-R-A. And so you can follow um me on either one of those platforms or I mean platforms with accounts um and then uh yeah uh, you know reach out to me if you uh if you um enjoy the show have anything you want to say or you know bring up or something please do it's always cool um been able to meet a few cool people from doing the podcast have reached out and you know um kind of made some new friends from from the whole process so it's really awesome you know it's been awesome to really to make friends with the horsemen and then it's awesome to make friends with all the the people who uh, listen and 
reach out and contact and you know it's it's uh, great it's kind of uh, a little community of individuals that are starting to build up which is nice um so yeah that's what's going on this week um as far as before I get in the episode, um, anything to bring up? Uh, one thing that I'd like to bring up is the thing that I've been addicted to for the past few days uh, is a podcast that um, Nas from Aklis had recommended to me, and it's called Monsters Among Us. And um, you know, Nas and I talk a lot about you know all this kind of paranormal shit, and um brought up a couple podcasts to check out and this is one of them and it's really cool uh it's all like true stories it's primarily people calling in their experiences uh everything from ufos cryptids ghosts um you know anything paranormal unexplained kind of feels like an unexplained mysteries type of vibe like the kind of intro to it kind of reminds me of that old tv show you know so uh yeah it's really sick i'm and like kind of addicted to it been kind of like on that like you know x-files vibe you know what i mean like which i dig so if you like that kind of stuff like i do you know i fucking live for the creepy weird shit uh check it out man there's a lot of really cool stories you know and i'm sure you know you know obviously some of them might need to take a grain of salt but but um but uh, some of them, particularly what I like about it is that people have to call in. Or, you know, he does do some things where he reads people's experiences, but it's not exclusively that. It's primarily people calling in or sending him, like, a voice message, you know, voice message. And uh, and I think there's a difference between that because when, you, you know, I mean, obviously some people are good actors or something, but you can kind of tell genuine, like, kind of, um, you know, fear sometimes in people's voices like and things like this so you can tell that a lot of these are genuine experiences people had and uh, you know gives you food for thought you know i'm definitely a i've had plenty of strange experiences in my life and maybe um maybe i eventually do a kind of episode about that i think that'd be kind of cool cool theme at some point to talk about with somebody like you know true life and kind of paranormal experiences we had but um uh you know from my experience and from you know other people's experiences that i know and trust and uh, some you know some of these type of experiences people have that seem to be true uh you know it's a fucking wild world out there man like there's a lot there's more under heaven um than uh god can whatever i don't remember that there's that quote like there's more under heaven than uh god can know you know and there's there's tons of shit going on in this world and um i think a lot of it just comes down to how much you are aware of them you know like how much you pay attention um you know a lot of people pay no attention to the world around them they're so wrapped up in their day-to-day and looking at their phones and doing all that kind of shit that they they never look up and look at the world around them you know and that's probably why people back in the day experience this stuff more than people do now. Because it's probably going on all around you, but you're like, uh, you know, excluding it out of your, out of, you know, out of your uh, awareness. Because you got to realize that our awareness and how much of the reality around us we're aware of is um, uh, learned behavior. It's not some people think that reality is reality, but that's not true. Reality is what you've trained yourself to perceive, you know, um, People who train themselves to 
read license plate numbers and they memorize them like you know people train themselves to look at everything around them and memorize them i think people who are nature people tend generally tend to have a wider range of awareness than city people but um even i mean when i lived downtown i mean it was like the concrete jungle like you had to have a kind of like uh awareness down there you know so uh it's not just you know can't just be written off like urban people aren't you know i think i think real urban people who are like on the street have like a lot more awareness and people who are real nature people it's the kind of the suburban like comfortable lifestyle people who you know never get out of their car and never in a position where they don't pay attention to their phones or whatever you know they're the ones who are most dead and they've you know the longer you exist in this way the more you're training your awareness to see less so there's a lot of things that could be happening on pretty much right in front of your face that you're not even aware of because your brain just chooses to filter it out because it doesn't think it's important. And this is very much a true fact. Your brain will do that. So, you know, think about that. Maybe open your mind and your awareness and really pay attention to your surroundings sometimes and you'll see more weirdness than you expect. But with that being said, we're going to get into the episode with uh, The Exorcist 3 and... uh gonna start off this uh this uh episode with a little ditty so i'll let you guys be surprised i hope you guys enjoy and hail satan
All right, there we go. Yeah, we had a nice little start to our conversation there. And, uh... Heated start <laughs> to the conversation. <laughs> Not heated with each other, though. Heated about society. Yeah. I, uh, I've i been kind of pissed, getting more pissed off about this kind of stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, 100% agree. The um, what is the, it'll be like old mystery for people. What are they talking about? <laughs> I think if they if they listen to both of our podcasts <laughs> enough, they probably can put two and two together. Yeah, I think so. We'll 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 throw the hint out there. Uh, it's a friend who's been uh, targeted by unscrupulous characters. Yeah, I say characters in a very charitable word, you know, like a very charitable use of the word scumbags. Is, scumbags, is what yeah. I, what I, what I, low lifes. I always, I always laugh when uh, when Michael uses the word low life. <laughs> I, as a matter of fact, I was listening to Necromaniacs the other day, and he said it in in a conversation he was having with Jeff or with Mike. And I was busy bench pressing, and I laughed so hard I had to rack, rack <laughs> up again. <laughs> it's such like it's such an old fashioned word, and the way that he uses it is so fucking funny, but yeah. uh, like so so perfectly used. But it's just hysterical. Low life, yeah. I mean, well, we all definitely met some low lives in in the, in the world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Big time. The um, yeah, uh, it was good to have you back on the show. We've been. Uh, talking we have a few different ideas in this first one we're doing so yeah no i've been very very excited about this because i know i've been talking about doing it on my podcast for a while now or that i was going to be on your show uh i the I, I did talk about this movie with jeremy wagner like way back like episode seven or eight i think uh i did like a, a halloween special and i did mention this is one of my favorite horror movies ever and i think i was probably if i had to like like top five it i i think this is probably my my number two um you know second only to um the first exorcist right and obviously most people should know what we're about to start talking about the exorcist three but i just I, for years and years and years now it's just it's just a movie that i can go back to over and over again i always love it when i watch it i always see new things and new things to savor and enjoy and appreciate about it i just think it's uh from my perspective i think it's a faultless film i think it's absolutely excellent yeah i would agree i mean i think um it's one of those movies that gets overlooked i think it's starting to get it it's day in the sun a little bit more as time nowadays um uh, you know more people are talking about it like joe bob briggs did it on shutter you know like there's it's been getting more attention but um i definitely think it it deserves it and i, I also think that's a movie that's maybe uh not for everybody in some ways because it has a as we'll get into it has like um a certain type of pacing and way of of doing things that i think some people might might not like but for the people who do like it it's like perfect you know what i mean yeah yeah definitely and I, the thing is I, I would i would agree with you about it having its time in the sun now i think time has been very kind to it um, because there's a lot of movies from that era. So this film came out in 1990. There's a lot of movies from that era that, you know, really don't wear their age very well at all. And, um, you know, you can watch this movie and I have the, the version I have here is the, the screen factory, um, uh, like 1080p remaster. Right. And yeah. it's, uh, it, it still looks reasonably good. The, the film isn't very, um, effects heavy, but the, the practical effects I think still look, look reasonable. What carries it, and again, you know, we'll talk about it more in a second. But what what carries it is the performances, you know, and great performances as we know from the first Exorcist, from The Shining, from Silence of the Lambs. It that that just never it never dates, never ages. No, and I think um, 
yeah, obviously, like this movie stars. Um, primary star is um uh, George C. Scott, who uh, uh re- takes over the role of Lieutenant Kinderman, who is in um character in the first movie, who was um got kind of involved with after the death of um what's his name, the director guy. I'm forgetting his name, but when when Reagan like kills the director and throws him out the the window and he falls down the stairs you know like she like pricks yeah, his yeah. head uh, it's burke. the director's name but that's it's gonna bug me if i uh um... it's uh burke is his last burke. name yeah, yeah burke dennings burke dennings yeah yeah so yeah so he gets involved in the story around that point and um and particularly you kind of get in the movie and it's particularly uh apparent in the book that he he basically figures out what's going on and he's kind of horrified by it and so he kind of keeps his silence on you know, he 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 figured out that Reagan had killed Burke and all those kinds of stuff. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he has an idea, um, but he kind of keeps his silence about it in a lot of ways. And um, and and that in that movie, uh, Kinderman is played by another actor, but um, that actor died before uh, before they came around to make Exorcist three, right? And I mean, um, Exorcist three is based off of um, the novel Legion which um William Peter Blatty wrote and um I know that what they ended up doing instead for Exorcist 2 was making that her- terrible movie The Heretic you know and um that was like I don't think it was very p- successful or anything either and um I mean it was uh, a long time until they let him do Exorcist 3 I mean uh I don't know when a legion came out I think it was in the 80s sometime so legion uh, the book was released in 1983 yeah, so uh, and the film came out in 191990 and uh with regards to George C Scott I think that that actor had passed away in something like 1984 1985. Yeah. Uh and and I I not to wish, you know, ill upon somebody, but I I am glad that fate conspired to have George George C Scott, you know, play the role of Lieutenant Kinnaman because he brings such a uh, he, he brings a real thoughtfulness to this. So he brings quite a bit of intensity to the role as well. Yeah. Um, but I think the tone of the movie suits the, I think really suits his personality or certainly suits, the, you know, whatever he was projecting on this, uh, on this film, because he's, he's a man who's been worn down by all of the horrible things he's seen over the course of his career. And is kind of questioning existence, questioning God, questioning you know really sort of everything that uh, you know he is he is until now or at least until a, a certain period in his life you know believed and held to be true. Yeah, the um, he's like I think uh, George C. Scott really was the right person for. I don't I I mean the actor who played Kinderman in the first movie. Uh, is maybe a little bit closer to the idea of Kinderman in the book, but I would I can't imagine him carrying a whole movie. You know what I mean? Like when you get to a point where okay, he's not just like a, a supporting character; like he's going to be the the character, the main character of the story. You know, like I think you have kind of have to have some like George C. Scott fill in those shoes who can bring the character to life in a way that you know, it's kind of entrancing. Like you're watching and you're like entranced by his performance in this movie, you know, and you can really see the world weariness. Yeah. And, um, and everything in it. And, um, he, he, he's an actor that conveys subtlety incredibly well. You know, there's, there's moments in the movie that are like genuinely, if you, 
you know, if you are fully invested in what you're seeing, is laugh out loud funny. You know, he's sarcasm. He's got this very dry wit. Uh, there's a line where he's having an argument um, with uh, one of the guys that works for him, and you know, he, he I think he, he says something, and the uh, guy asks him, you know, who he's talking to, and he says, <laughs> or, or, or who he's who, he, who he's referring to, and he says, like beings from Mars. Sometimes they listen, and right. he, you know, <laughs> he, he he throws these very kind of you know, um, Claude Bob's out at the people that work for him, the people that are around him that are actually in the context of the movie, very, very funny, but I totally agree with you. I don't think that, um, you know, that, that, that actor on, in the exorcist that was, um, you know, that, that played Kinderman, uh, he was a little nondescript, the emotional weight of some of what goes on in, in the exorcist three, I could not possibly see him carry off. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, what it comes down to, I mean, so in the end, it kind of conspired for it to be better, you know, and the movie um, takes place about, I think it's 15 years after the events of The Exorcist, something like this, 15 or 16. And um, I guess, essentially, you don't quite know what's going on when it starts, which I think is pretty genius. Like, it starts with, like, these helicopters going across uh, D.C., and um and then it kind of follows that follows helicopters until you get to this dock area and you realize that you're seeing a crime scene and you're introduced to kinderman like at first like in silence he's looking at the body you know what i mean yeah um and you really you don't get a whole lot of what's going on you, you hear they have some questions that he asks the people about the crime scene and this stuff um but really, like, you know, he goes home, he talks to his, they introduce his wife and his family, and then they introduce Father Dyer, who was in the first movie, who was best friends with Father Karras, who died in the first movie. And he actually comes back, the guy who played that part. Mm. And, um, and so he introduces them, and then and then they end up meeting up, and they're going to go see a movie. I think it's like, uh, it's a wonderful life, it's right? It's a wonderful life. Yep. And they go to have dinner, and that's when you finally find out what happened at the crime scene. And mm. it's all told like in dialogue with Kinderman describing in dialogue the horrible, like brutal murder that, that you know what I mean? Like and and I always found that really effective. They didn't they didn't show you what had what they you know, you see later on in like a dream sequence kind of like the what you know, the crime scene in a way, but him describing it in detail like that almost is worse because you're like mm. forced to kind of you know, imagine it in your head, like, and, you know, oh, he's like crucified to these oars and, you know, like his head is decapitated and replaced with like a Jesus sculpture. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. The, so, so interesting about this, this was William Peter Blatty's only the second movie that he directed and he only directed two movies and, you know, while he was alive, he did the ninth configuration in 1980 and then he, he did this in 1990. For somebody who had only directed two movies, he really did an, absolutely sensational job again at, at at that kind of subtle building of tension and that opening scene is incredibly good the one thing that i think that that you 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 missed which i i've always loved about the opening of the the, the film is as you kind of see this you 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 see a camera moving down a street and you hear a uh, a voice saying 
uh, I have dreams of a I have dreams of a rose and falling down a long flight of stairs. All oh, right, yeah, yeah. And and it's like later on it becomes apparent where this is coming from, but it, it you know it just sets the tone so well. The other thing that's incredible about the film doesn't have a huge amount of uh, background music. The music that it has, or the sound, the, the score that it has is mostly confined to these weird gurgles and growls and you know sometimes just like like one single key almost kind of like a cleese kind of um soundscapes right. yeah, i can imagine <laughs> i can imagine nas writing shit like that um and again you know that really really helps set the tone for the film so well but you know I, I, again to to william peter blatty's credit he knows when to you know he knows when to kind of pump the the juice just a little bit and he also knows when to pull back on the stick Something that you mentioned about the the conversation in the bar um, where uh, Kinderman is explaining the the murder, I think that David Fincher was quite ins- took a bit of inspiration from that for Seven, because yeah. if you if you think about Seven, quite a lot of the the you know more horrific details of the crimes in Seven is never actually shown to you; it's always spoken of. Yeah. Um, and I, I I can't verify this because I don't know David Fincher personally, sadly. If I did, I would demand that he immediately start <laughs> filming Mine Hunter season three. But um, there's definitely, like, I, I I feel like The Exorcist three certainly influenced him, and and I do think that it probably influenced far more more filmmakers and potentially people even realize. Yeah, I definitely agree with you with the seven comparison, and that's actually pretty apt in a lot of ways because. I mean, you can look at it like George C. Scott's Kinderman is like basically the same as as uh, Morgan Freeman's character in Seven. You know, they're both like these yeah. world weary, you know, detectives who have seen like horror. You know what I mean? And and particularly in the book Legion, like the whole mo- whole book and the whole movie is basically a meditation on evil. You know? Yeah. It's it's like in the book, and it's made even more apparent because he's like. You know, you're you're getting more insight into his head, you know, and and he's literally going on these kind of rambling, kind of meditations on evil and and um and the nature of evil and why and why why there is evil and why there is all this stuff and everything and you know it's really him grasping with maybe um you know a belief that if there is a god he's a cruel bastard type of type of mentality you know what I mean like well there's that really fantastic quote uh, during that conversation where. Kinderman says the whole world is a uh, homicide victim father would yeah. a God who's good invent something like that. Plainly speaking, it's a lousy idea. It's not popular. It's not a winner. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> you know, and, and then again, you know, they, through very subtle little touches to the script, they, you know, can immediately kind of set the, set the scene that this is a conversation that's been ongoing for a long period of time. Most likely Kinderman has been confiding in father Dyer for, uh, you know, about a great many of the things that he's conflicted about. Um, and it's just done with one simple line where where Father Die goes, there you go again, blaming God. Right. And it's like, it, 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 as I said, it's just these little subtleties that help set the, the, the scene for the movie and, and help you invest in the characters really, really quickly, which I... I think now that I, you know, as we've kind of come out of the golden age of television, I'm starting to appreciate that even more because a lot of TV shows, they kind of have the leeway and they have the flex to allow you to kind of develop a fondness for the characters over the course of several one hour episodes. Whereas, you know, this movie had 103 minutes and that was it, you know, you, you, but, but, but it pulls you in emotionally very, very well. And because it pulls you in emotionally, everything else has so much more meaning. Well, then you see like the, um, 
kind of affection and relationship between Kinderman and Father Dyer. Like, I mean, they they seem like old friends. You know what I mean? You feel like, and it's kind of set up too because it's like um, Kinderman talking to uh, to his wife and and uh, Dyer talking to the um, you know what. Uh, uh, whatever his, his name is um the deacon and stuff like that in the in the church like they're kind of set up oh yeah this is something they do like every year they go and see his wonderful life on the day that Karis died or whatever and each one each one is there to cheer the other one up according to according to them yeah exactly which i think is kind of funny <laughs> yeah it's very it's a very man type of way way of thinking you know what i mean <laughs> very much so <laughs> um it is in, in a way also I, I i would say it's a meditation on evil but it's also a meditation a meditation on friendship yeah. um a fr- friendship and on the bonds formed between you know men that have gone through an extraordinary amount of difficult things together um and that really becomes apparent later on in the film you know for reasons we'll we'll reveal shortly right yeah the um I think, um, and I think the other good thing to say at this point is that they think uh, Blady does a really good job, even though, yeah, he is a, um, you know, he's a writer. I mean, he wrote the screenplay for the original Exorcist. He wrote the screenplay for this one. He's he's written a screenplay, so he has an idea of film has to have a visual medium as well as a verbal. And I think he does a good job in this of, balancing it too because the first whole section of the movie like you said there's like a rose and there's like these imageries that pop up later you know what i mean that makes sense later you know yeah and and at this point it's just like imagery that and there's a lot of that throughout the movie a lot of use of this imagery to tell something that's going on in, in the story you know what i mean but and then he's also using words to tell what's going on in yeah. very very creative ways you know well the interesting thing again about um the or the backstory to how he ended up directing this really was a passion project for him more so even than than the first exorcist film you know he was much younger when the exorcist was filmed obviously i think he was probably operating more at the behest of the the studios than than uh, he may have done later on but originally uh, william friedkin was attached to direct uh, and he didn't really buy into the story John Carpenter had been uh, had been approached apparently about it, but I think he withdrew because he realized after speaking to uh, William Peter Blatty that you know he really was desperate to direct this. And again, I'm extremely happy that uh, that he did. There's another piece of intervention as well. Again, we can talk about this uh, when the nearer the time that I'm very very glad about. Also, um, this actually was not uh, on William Peter Blatty's behalf, but it was on the studio's behalf. But I I personally feel. And this is a bone of contention around folks that that um, you know watch and, and and enjoy the movie as much as you and I do. But there's a um, there's there's definitely I, I I'm I'm very firmly in one camp versus the other. Let me say that with what happens late like, like, towards the end of the movie. No, with the inclusion of Jason Miller as um, uh, as uh, you know as 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 the returning Damien Carris. Oh, so right, yeah. in 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 the original. Uh, in the original cut of the film, uh, there is no Jason Miller. Uh, Brad Dourif does every single thing himself. And then uh, essentially what the studio said was, we have to create a link back to The Exorcist. Um, and so, one, they, they shoehorned the exorcism scene at the end in, which actually, again, I like. I, I think it, I think it's a good way to end the, the film. 
but they also insisted that uh, Jason Miller come back and reprise the role of of Karis. And so you have these um, alternating images of Karis, one manifested as James Veneman, the Gemini killer in Brad Dourif, and one uh, manifested in, you know, Father Karras, this tormented man who's now being possessed by the by the soul and the the, the spirit of the Gemini killer. But Damien, uh, uh, sorry, Jason Miller. For me, I said this. I've said this to Mike as well. No, no, Jason Miller, no Exorcist. I, I, I don't. This is why I'm not. I'm not interested in seeing this Exorcist um, remake, reboot, whatever the fuck they call it. If Jason Miller is not in it, not interested. Yeah, I would agree with you. I'm in the camp too. Like, I'm glad that they had both. Brad Dorf and Jason Miller at the end, you know. Um, I agree with that. Uh, but yeah, let's um, continue on before, since, and we'll talk more about that when we get there. But yeah, I think um, there's an, let's see, I'm trying to remember. So the next murder is different. Trying to remember the, the details of the next murder. Is it the uh, the Thomas... next murder is 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 in the confessional? The confessional, yes. So the genius scene where a um, the a priest is pictured opening up the confession window, and you hear this very eerie sounding voice talk to him about um, uh, I think they say seventeen confessions or something that they need to make. Yeah, and then that's it right. starts with you know a, a person that was murdered, and then you know the voice starts to laugh maniacally, and you know you see the priest really like terrified for his life, and then again it just cuts. You know you don't you don't ever see the murder being committed, but it's such an intense like you know un- unbelievably intense scene, and just so well directed. Again, zero effects, just great great direction, great writing. Yeah, I love that because because you you have that really creepy scene where she comes in and starts maniacally laughing at him and then you cut to somebody screaming you know in the in the church and then there's this blood like coming on the floor you know like yeah and uh and that's when they figure out with this murder that they they do like print scans and stuff and they realize that there's different murder different um different perpetrators of the murder right um which is very strange because the MO is exactly the same as the Gemini killer, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, as we started to learn. So um, I'm trying to remember how he. And gets- there's a there's a specific MO with the with the Gemini killer in that uh, he does do, I think does a mark on the left hand palm, um, yeah, and removes like one of the index fingers or something, something, something specific. And, and it's something that um, Kinderman reveals to his colleagues. They'd never told anybody that never leaked to the, you know, they leaked a, f- a f- uh, fake MO to the press because they wanted to kind of weed out the crazies from, you know, people that, you know, might, might be legit. And so no one knew about it, but these, these uh, killings all had that particular MO. And right. the big shock is after the, um, the, the killing of, uh, I think his father, Canavan, uh, yeah, Father Canavan. He is. Um, it's then revealed that this has been the, the murders. Uh, the murders have been committed by two people. So Thomas, the boy from the police club, was killed by a different person to Father Canavan. Right, and then they also figure out with Father Canavan, I think that he was injected with some type of drug that they use for um, electroshock therapy. Yeah, and um, succinicoline. Yeah. 
um, so that he could f- be alive and feel the murder without him, like, you know, like being able to do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and this is what, and this, and then I think they find in the church, they find an old lady who apparently belongs to like the, the, you know, dementia Alzheimer's ward of this hospital. And, uh, this, so the two things seem to kind of link up where you have this old lady who's there at the scene of the murder for some reason and they're using this murder is using essentially medical stuff to like kill people. You know what I mean? So this all eventually leads back to the hospital. And they well, take in the, the meantime the as well, the, the, the connection that's formed is that um, Father Dyer has, you know, un- un- undisclosed medical troubles that lands him in hospital as well. And yeah. so Kinderman goes to visit him. Um, and then whilst at the hospital, shit starts going shit starts going south <laughs> yeah he um he uh one one of the things that's and that's when he uh, starts to right he i think they show him around in the uh they show him around the 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 dementia ward right where the lady was from and then they um he starts to look over the um the other part where it's like the people in isolation and um, as he's walking down the hallway, he hears his name being called, and he looks in on uh, the room that Karis is in. Mm. But he gets distracted by that, from that, um, by something, and then he leaves. But I think then what? Then he like goes home. He goes to sleep. He's like looking at Jeremy stuff, and it's at night. That night, basically, Father Dyer is murdered in the hospital. Right. So. And that, and he is, has a dream that that um, foretells of the of the death because in his dream he's going to purgatory, yeah, and he's meeting with all of these people, including Thomas. Fabio um, is there also, yeah, <laughs> and so is so incidentally is Samuel L. Jackson, um, yeah, and so he he sees all these things, and then right at the end of the uh, of the dream, he sees Father um, uh, Father Dyer being murdered, and then uh, the next day, he's he's contacted to be told that a nurse has discovered uh, Father Dyer's body in his bed in the hospital, killed. Yeah, because he he sees uh, Father Dyer there like playing cards or something with a with a angel, and he's got like these like his his necks all stitched together, you know, because he's, yeah. he's decapitated and. Um, He's like, am I dreaming? He's like, no, you are dreaming, but I'm not, or whatever. And then he wakes up and finds out that Dyer's been killed. And I mean, you can see Dorsey Scott does a really, really good, masterful job of showing that kind of part of somebody who uh, has lost like his best friend and mm-hmm. is trying to keep it together because he has to, because it's a professionally he has to keep it together. You know what I mean? But you know, he goes up and the whole scene of him like looking at the body and. And then it's revealed that the killer uh, put all of his blood in these little like urine cups, <laughs> like on the side yeah. of the bed, <laughs> and then wrote in his blood, "It's a wonderful life" on on the wall. You know, yeah, it's really fucking... the the putting the blood in the urine cups. It's a nice touch. I did always think they needed a few more cups to make I... it a bit more realistic. Yeah, <laughs> I, that's that's one part that my brain just blocks out. It's a very small, minor detail. But nevertheless, I can see it, I can see it being something that take people out of the film. Um, I, I just I just block it out. Yeah, because you're not gonna put the entire uh, blood supply or somebody in a you know that meant 
that that few urine cups. I mean, your I, I I would also say um, the 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 scene where um, Kinderman actually views the body and he's you know he's he's lifting the lifting the sheet and things like that. Um, there's a couple of very sort of emotional moments where he's kind of caught you know almost wanting to break down, but he, he collects himself. But it, it's again done so well. And it so subtly conveys the pain that he feels seeing his friend pass away. And it is it's actually at this point that that he reveals that um the MO for the Gemini killer has been the same on all of the um on all of the bodies that they found. Yeah, that's because he's basically they're like locking down the hospital and the, the doctor's pissed off at him for doing that and everything, and, and he that's when he reveals re- what's going on and they're kind of like oh shit like this is serious you know so they let them lock down the hospital basically um and then uh, i think it's a few scenes down down the line is when um you see the kind of head of the psychiatric ward or whatever of the hospital who's fucking like per like so crazy he's like always smoking a cigarette in this real weird way yeah. and and um you go and you like see his 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 office and it's like so like weird it's like you could imagine some like psychiatric, like, you know, doctor's office looking like this, you know what I mean? Like with like, like that, like the weird, like, um, weird, like collage thing he did with like, it's like a porno like poster with like all these weird, like things set around it, you know? <laughs> and these uh, like, so he, so his name is uh, Dr. Temple. Yeah. Uh, played by Scott Wilson, uh, who was in, I think the walking dead was the last main thing that he was in for like season, I think in season one or season two. Which is a shit show, but anyway, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so he's got the 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 porno thing and a whole stack of like uh, I think it's modern science magazines or something. Yeah, and he says he he likes to he he saves the science journals to read them. But yeah, very <laughs> a very interesting quirky man who's who's kind of pictured again. It's a bit of a sleight of hand. You don't realize that that he's rehearsing what to say. But you know, as the camera kind of pans back, you see there's nobody else in the room, and he just he just keeps on rehearsing the same line. Yeah, of what re- to say to Kinderman. Yeah, he's got like it on this little piece of paper, and he's like, "I love the when Kinderman comes in, and he kind of hides a piece of paper, <laughs> and he puts yeah. out a cigarette, and he's just like, like kind of like pushing it out, like making sure it's like so. I've seen people like I've known people like that who are like so crazy they're just like trying to like crush their cigarettes out, like like real neurotically like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, that's when um, he gives like this whole rehearsed speech to Kinderman about the man in that room that he looked in. He apparently showed up like 15 years ago and was like catatonic and, um, you know, and then only came out of it like, what, like a few, you know, not that long before. And there's all this like, um, if I remember correctly, it's like he came out of, out of it slowly. And then once he did, um, he was like raving lunatic, you know, like, and they had to lock him up in, um, in the isolation ward and everything. Cause he was like trying to kill people and stuff. And yeah. So I think it's like six months ago, he, he started to become responsive and then three weeks ago it started to accelerate. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, they, they, but you know, he became violent and eventually they had to lock him in the, um, they had to lock him in the, uh, in the, in the padded cell. Yeah, and then they find that he goes in these weird states in which his body slows down, but his mind speeds up. Like you know, he'll go in these like weird states. 
But anyways, he says that this man asked specifically for Kinderman. And so this is when we, Kinderman um, walks in and he realizes that his father Karis, like he's like horrified. You know what I mean? Like that. Mm. And uh, I think it's shortly after that, we get the first like kind of confrontation with him and um, the father Karis slash Gemini killer, which is an amazing piece of cinema. Like, well, the, the the first thing that we get is uh, I, I believe I'm, I'm I'm I hope I'm not wrong on the sequencing of this, but we we get that really great kind of spoken monologue of where where Father Karras is, is uh, saying, "Death be not proud, for though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, thou art not so." And then he like says it, and then uh, right right at the end, he was like, I think he says like, "I was just 17 when I died," and then it's like in a completely different voice, and it's like, you know, okay, shit is about to go very very seriously off the rails now. <laughs> yeah and the the uh that conversation starts off with jason miller as the character for uh the first section of it and his fucking he does a great job like he's very very eerie in that scene you know what i mean mm. and um and then at some point i think it's his first confrontation when uh all of a sudden, he freaks out and switches and switches over to Brad Dourif playing the part. And, yeah. So uh, what happens is uh, the 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 father Karras um, manifestation of uh, of the of the of the demon says to um, Kinderman or, or insists to Kinderman that he has to call him James Venom and the Gemini Killer. And um, uh, what same Kinderman says to him, I don't believe that you're the Gemini Killer. Um, and then all of a sudden you get this really, really amazing, like, like, uh, kind of Hitchcock zoom out, zoom in scene, uh, on, uh, Brad Dura's face. And then he's, you know, he screams, no, I'm alive. Uh, I live, I breathe, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like that, that that's when the real kind of, um, the, 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 the real James Venom and, uh, manifests himself. Yeah, exactly. And, um, I think, um, when it is more of the Karis, talking it almost feels more like the demon yeah like it feels like the demon more so than and then when it switches to brad durf it's more of the gemini killer because you can tell there's basically like you have father karis is there still like in some way but then there's also the demon and there's also the gemini killer you know what i mean like and it seems like the gemini killer is able to you know like he says like i'm a traveling man you know like one who moves yeah one who moves to kinderman which uh ends up making sense in a little bit but yeah they he has this whole confrontation amazing just amazing dialogue that like is really like chilling you know like really haunting and um it ends with him kind of going into the state that they described um i think uh i think um kinderman punches him first too right <laughs> yeah he does because um he's he talks to him in detail about how he killed um father dyer yeah and he explains right. everything that he did to kill him and you know how he he had to use the old the old succinacholine to permit one to work without annoying distractions <laughs> um which you know you, you know how many times i've seen this movie i can quote whole bits of dialogue from it but and then yeah it it, it as he's kind of explaining this you know un- understandably kinnaman is getting more and more worked up and eventually stands up and punches him and then uh he's told by um 
uh, what's sent by the Gemini killer, you're issuing you you're issuing a clear invitation to the dance. Yeah, and then he says something about the master is throwing him scraps from his table, like something random, something my way, something fun, something my way. Yeah, <laughs> and that's when he goes down and um the uh yeah he's like describing how he like he's like we push him like till he comes out all the blood comes out <laughs> he's just doing this like motion like pumping the body or whatever <laughs> You're like jesus christ but yeah the um he goes down and then he's uh kinderman gets his hand like fixed up or whatever and um and then we're treated to a pretty like a tense pretty tense scene um with this nurse basically right and um i think that they don't they think that um gemini killer is going to be going after some kid or something like that because he says the kid's name yeah so he says um goodbye air or something goodbye amy um and he says it says says another name and i um I don't think this is with a with a with a kid just yet. So first, there's the um, there's the nurse that gets killed in the hospital in what is unequivocally the greatest jump scare in the history of horror movies. Yeah. Um, and to to just to, to say it would almost spoil it for anybody who's who's not seen the movie. But the, you know they they should they should know better. But it's essentially this 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 one static shot on a a corridor in the hospital. You can see the door to two different um, hospital rooms, and there's a sound coming from one, which a nurse goes to investigate. It's clearly late at night, so there's nobody that uh, you know. She, I think, there's one security guard, but there's no one really, um, you know, with her other than that. In the room, there's kind of a false flag jump scare where you know a a patient screams uh, awake and is furious at the nurse for disturbing him. She then leaves the room, goes back to her business. And then the sounds continue, and she, you know, she's clearly unnerved. She's about to start leaving, and as she leaves, this um, uh, what, what looks like a headless statue is comes storming out of the room with a pair of um, like surgical shears. Yeah, uh, and then you know, again, you're, it's left to your imagination as to what happens next. But the way that it's shot, the the, the kind of static shot, and then suddenly this kind of explosion of action. Um, I, I I would agree with anyone that says it's the best jump scare ever because I, I I've never I've seen grown men go two feet in the air from seeing that for the first time. <laughs> well, I think too it it does like the false flag with the first one, and then I think the other thing too is that she goes into that room that the thing comes out of. So you're like really surprised, like you're like you think everything's okay, and all of a sudden this thing comes out of that room and fucking yeah shears her head off or whatever you know you're like oh fuck like and it's over real fast it, it kind of reminds me of um the first kill in texas chainsaw massacre mm. and they're in the house and then all of a sudden fucking um leatherface rips the door open and smashes the guy in the head and pulls him in and he's still like shaking it's like yeah, a little yeah. bit like that where it's just like that it's like so fast and so brutal you're just kind of like oh fuck like you know what i mean like you don't you don't really in the Texas same time is a little bit more more visceral because I mean obviously yeah. he hit, hits the guy in the head and stuff, but it's kind of a similar effect. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So they find the nurse who's dead. That's yeah, right, Amy. I think is her name. He says yeah. good night, Amy. And um. Yeah. Um. And a further conversation with uh, the Gemini killer ensues, where he explains 
you know, how he killed Amy. Uh, and then there's a couple of just absolutely magnificent scenes. Um, one actually we forgot to mention in the first interaction with um with a, with a, the the demon when he's Father Karras is that brilliant scene where Father Karras is growling and then he says, I do that rather well, don't you think? Well, why not? I was taught by the master. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> absolute genius. I get yeah. I get goosebumps just thinking about that. And then um in the in the subsequent conversation that we're referring to now after Amy's death. Um, there's a, a a scene where I, I I can't even entirely remember how it kind of builds up to this climax, but essentially the Gemini killer kind of um, basically loses it with with um, Kinnaman, and he starts screaming at him and says, um, you know, he's the the main thing is the torment of your friend Father Karras as he watches while I rip and mutilate the innocent, his friends again and again. And the, the camera is kind of really trained on Brad Dura's face. They're doing all sorts of cool effects with his voice. Um, you know, then uh, the, these multiple voices come in and you really kind of get the sense of the, the demonic possession that's going on. You know, he, he screams, he's inside with us. He'll never get away. His pain won't end. And then kind of just like that, it stops. And Brad Dourif sits down and he says, gracious me, was I raving? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and he goes, please forgive me. I'm mad, you see. <laughs> and it's like, again, it's like that, that that sort of thing in the movie where it's these incredibly heavy moments that are punctuated by these like like almost sort of black humor uh, bits that just, okay, gives you a little bit of levity and then, you know, we're straight back into the thicker things. Yeah, I think that's what Blady does best. I mean, he did do a lot of like um, comedy writing and stuff like that as well, and so I think yeah. that plays a part in in um, in this one in particular. Like he has, he does kind of do that where he kind of has these kind of black humor jokes, you know, put throughout. You know what I mean? And and that part is a really great scene. He just like switches on the dime, and it's like completely different. And they do like kind of do certain effects of his voice to, I think depending on how much the demon is there and how much is him and you know I think there's a lot of thought to how the voice is you know and, yeah. and I think that that's telling people a story in of itself if you pay attention you know yeah no I, I would agree again in the you know earlier on in the um, in the meetings with the Gemini killer um, you know when he's talking about the things that he does to his to his victims um, you know, he's got this moment where he says, um, you know, I must admit, it makes me chuckle every time. And then he goes, life is fun. It's a wonderful life, in fact. And then as he like leans back, his voice gets like super deeper for some. And it's just, <laughs> a, again, it just adds such a sense of menace to the movie and a sense of menace to the character, um, which, which again, you know, uh, as a lesson to, you know, most of the fucking trash that I would say, actually, I, I say most of the trash that's come out in modern horror there has been a bit of a renaissance in horror. There's a lot of good stuff coming out, but I mean, you know, I think that that imbecile that directed the um, the Candyman remake, she should be sat made to sit down and watch The Exorcist three at least nine hundred to a thousand times <laughs> right before she makes her next movie. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people who could use to watching this movie. The yeah. um the one thing we did forget to mention too is uh, earlier in the movie. Um, father williams or whatever is mentioned and that is nicole williamson as this father that this like he apparently has done exorcism or something in the past right and his hair turned white we're given that oh uh, it's father morning father morning that's right his name yeah 
And uh, yes, Nicole Williamson is the actor, and you know, um, he's a great actor. He's in like Excalibur and so many, you know, great movies. And um, he's introduced into it, and of course, it's got to be pointed out that his inclusion is a little bit of a late uh, studio studio thing, but um, it works. And I mean, he's technically the the father of the hospital; like, he's attached to the hospital, so. It makes sense later on when he shows up, um, like that. You know, you've seen him throughout. You've seen him being kind of like, um, like the presence, like the evil is. You know, the demons kind of like um, pressing down on him a little bit. You know what I mean? Like mm. you can feel it. Kills and, the, the bird he rescued. Yeah, it kills the bird. Turns, he his, rescued. turns his crucifix upside down <laughs> in the, the room. Yeah, he's all those kinds of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, I think there's a scene where he's like in the chapel or something, praying or something like that. I think. Yeah. Well, this this as you as you pointed out, this was added in um, after the original film had already been completed. Uh, so the final cut had been turned in. The studio said, "No, we need a we need an actual exorcism." And I think William Peter Blatty was dead set against it at first, and I think eventually came around. And his feeling was that you know, I think he had come up with an idea to put it in to where he didn't feel that it compromised on the film as much. And I, I have seen both cuts. I've seen the Legion cut and I've seen the Exorcist 3 cut, and I much prefer the Exorcist 3 because I think it's there's more of a cl more closure to it. And I think particularly with the, the climax of the film, the Legion cut that doesn't include the Exorcism just kind of ends on a very flat note, you know, feels kind of like it could have been a made-for-television drama. You know, you right. have the, the pomp and circumstance with the Exorcism at the ending, Um that you know there's I, I i'm sure there's many people that might be listening to this that'll go oh it should never have been in there it doesn't fit i think different strokes for different folks i think had it you know i think without it there having seen the the, the, the two cuts it feels a bit flat yeah i think that's an issue even in the novel itself um the the ending's kind of stupid because basically um you're it's revealed in the novel it's kind of mentioned in the movie here and there that the reason why the Gemini killer is doing the, doing the things and he really insists on the stuff being in the newspapers. Like that's what he's trying to put pressure on Kinderman to do mm. is to say in the newspapers that he's the Gemini killer because he's trying to shame his father. He was like this minister person, like this corrupt minister character that he hates and that he wants to shame and r drag their name through the mud or whatever that, you know what I mean? That That's like his whole, his whole MO. So yeah. in the novel, it's presented that essentially the father, like uh, after the Gemini killer and everything like that, his father basically kind of went kind of silent and stopped doing his stuff. But then after a while, he came back and started doing his ministry stuff again. And that's why the Gemini killer started killing again, as because he found because somehow, you know, his spirit and Karis's body found out his father was still doing it. So he start comes back and he starts murdering again. Mm. And essentially the reason why the movie ends at the end is because uh the father dies, so the Gemini killer just leaves Karis's body and it's very, very weak ending. Mm. It's very kind of stupid. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. oh okay, all all of a sudden, yeah. So I think the ending of this movie is a lot more I mean, we're not hundred percent at the end yet, but just as a Spoil shocker! Like the ending in this movie, I think is a lot better. <laughs> yeah, no, I would, I, I would definitely agree, and I, I, I totally agree with you on the, 
the ending of the book as well. It it feels it feels silly, like almost cartoonish, given especially given what's happened before. And I think it also takes away to some degree the 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 weight of the uh, of Kinderman's uh, experience with the Gemini killer. Um, again, I think having the the flashbacks to um, you know Father Dyer and you know actually having Jason Miller in the room from a cinematic perspective, it just makes a heck of a lot more sense. Yeah, I mean we're basically almost at the end, anyways, because it's like after the Amy's murdered, um, the Gemini killer goes down into another trance, and he uh, and we get the amazing scene where he goes into the elderly lady's body, and she's crawling on the ceiling above the yeah. Head. Well, so so <laughs> at this point in the film, Kinderman is starting to suspect that. Um, the taking the the line that uh, the Gemini killer uses with him about being a traveling man, one who moves, he starts to suspect that he's being let out of the hospital somehow. Um, and his suspicions lead him to interview a number of people in the um, uh, in the dementia ward, including, um, if you match the voices up, clearly the woman who was at least present, if not uh, a participant in the death of. Uh, the priest earlier on in the film and then that then leads into this incredible scene where um you know there's a, again there's kind of a there's a there's a bit of a faint you think that that um the gemini killer is going one way but it turns up that uh he's headed to um kinderman's house yeah i also love the scene where 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 the old lady's like crawling on the on the ceiling that part's so oh, yeah, creepy because yeah. it's like moving like a spider kind of you yeah, know? and I think it kind of ties back to the the spider walk type of some of the movements of Reagan in the first movie. You know, like it's kind of like spider, like kind of they cut out some of the scenes of the movement, like a spider does. So it's very creepy when he's crawling along the ceiling in this woman's body. Yeah, you have this faint, and so they go into they think it's he's going after um, this kid, that, and they go in the kids' room and she's not there. And then father, um, then Kinderman gets a call. Uh, he figures out what's going on that they're going to his house. He goes to the house and there's the old lady there sitting, you know, like, and what's really creepy too is the part where he's calling his home and then they cut to his house and his wife answers the phone and it's like, it's obviously like the demon speaking in Kinderman's voice, you yeah, know? Yeah. Like you're, you're kind of like, oh fuck, that's creepy. Yeah, no, very much so. And then, and then Kinderman is confused when he first gets home because he sees the old woman there uh his wife is like why did this lady turn up here you know she's sitting there saying when is it bedtime um and then all of a sudden things kind of spring into action when you see her reaching down into the nurse's bag that she's brought along with her uh and she pulls out the the same pair of uh surgical shears that were used to uh behead amy earlier on in the film and then yeah. she she lunges for uh kinderman's daughter yeah and then her um his mother-in-law like pulls the daughter aside and he's like tackling the old lady and all of a sudden the old lady stops and you're realizing that father uh, morning has shown up to do the exorcism in the uh in the ward you know what i mean which has um brought the gemini killer back into his body you know yeah so and that's and that's when we get the kind of exorcism with father morning doing his thing and um you can see some cool imagery where where they're showing like what he's perceiving like the snakes like slithering all over him and the fire and all that stuff it's pretty it's not it's a cool scene 
I, again, it's it's quite hokey in a way. Again, you know, the 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 priest turns up and the the doors like fly open like he's some sort of fucking theological Rambo. <laughs> and it, but you know, I, I I again, I was just so invested in the film by that point. You know, when when uh, the Gemini killer goes, you know, you again, you interrupted me. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and it it I I just I absolutely love it. And then he says, you know, um, you know, come in, uh, you know, this time you'll lose. And then the exorcism begins. The exorcism turns out to be a bit of a fuck up. Um, and at this point, uh, after the father has uh, has met a very gruesome and untimely demise, Kinderman turns up. Yeah, and I I love this uh, Kinderman speech at the end. He's like, I believe. He's like, I believe in. I forget all the words that he says, but he says, it's like I, I believe in death. I believe in disease. I believe in injustice and inhumanity, torture and anger and hate. I believe in murder. I believe in pain. I believe in cruelty and infidelity. I believe in slime and stink and every crawling <laughs> putrid thing, every possible ugliness and corruption, you son of a bitch. And then you go like spitting out every last word. I yeah. believe in you. Yeah. I use that as a uh, sample in a song back in, like a long time ago, like on my, my yeah. demos. Cause I was like, that's just such a good, like, you know, use that and then go into like some satanic black metal song. That's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> I think I feel like a couple of bands have used that. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, there's this whole movie is so ripe for fucking mute samples for bands. It's 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 insane. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is kind of Kinderman in a way, almost um, confronting his own demons and the things that have been you know that he's been conflicted about all throughout the film. Um, he's kind of come face to face with it. You know. Stand staring into what could potentially be his his own death. Yeah, and then uh, Father Morning kind of distracts the demon, I guess. Like he's actually not dead, and uh, that causes Damien to take control for a moment. And just for a moment, Damien takes control, and Kinderman is able to shoot him and kill the body. Yeah, Kinderman, uh, not Kinderman, sorry, Karis says, like, you know, urges him to, to you know, shoot, you know, shoot me now, kill me now. And then Kinderman shoots him. Um, and he's emptied out most of the, most of the clip on his, um, on his body. And then, um, uh, what's name? Uh, Karis says to him, um, you know, thank you, Bill, now free me. And yeah. then, you know, the final shot is, is, the final shot is expelled from the chamber and, and, you know, there, there ends the, uh, the, the 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 true father father Karras is kind of finally finally put laid to rest then i think that's a i think it's worth it to have the, i think this whole ending is uh great because you have you have the great monologue from george c scott in that one part you have and you have a really like satisfying ending where he's confronting this evil and and killing it you know what i mean and setting free father Karras and everything you know what i mean like it's a very it's a much better ending than the original in my opinion, because it's like you feel like a sense of completion at the end of the movie, and it really completes the story set up in Exorcist One. And so it's like Exorcist One yeah. and Exorcist Three are a really good, like duology. Like watch one and the other. Because I mean, I just watched Exorcist One last week to do an episode last week, and then watch Exorcist Three, you know, this week to do it for this week. And I'm like, so they're a perfect like one-two punch. You know what I mean? Like they flow into yeah. each other and they call back to. You know, Exodus three calls back to the first one in a lot of ways, and and feels yeah, like and an extension ways, of it. 
I mean, Exodus Three is a very, very diff different film. But like, you think about, um, you know, there's this idea of making films or telling stories in in the same universe. I mean, like, I don't like Marvel movies, but like what you have in the Marvel movies, um, you know, you could make an argument to say that you know William Peter Blatty was one of the first to actually do that properly, where you know he was he had set, uh, you know, he'd set this, um, set up this film universe in Georgetown. Um, things that happened you know in the in the exorcist one film and you know he returns to it with the story that is is linked back to the first exorcist film but it is a very different story you know there's no none of the usual tropes that you would find with uh with a typical sequel you know very often sequels are just a complete rehash this is a this is a a continuation but also a different story in a way uh that's being told it, it's in some ways it's kinderman's story Whereas the, the first Exorcist uh, film was Karis's story. Yeah, I would agree. You know, first one is definitely Karis's story. He's the, uh, you're told like, it's the first movie is Karis and, um, and the mother, you know, and um, yeah. I feel like they're the two main characters of the first movie because I'm trickly watching it the last time. I was like, okay, the first movie, I think when you get older, as an older, get, when you get older, and I'm sure it's even more so when you have kids, like, uh, the first movie takes on more weight because you start to see the movie through uh, through the mother's eyes. You're like, man, that'd be horrible, yeah. horrific. <laughs> yeah, this would well, be happening. So, you know. <laughs> so interestingly, I, I I think the first time I'd gone a period of time without watching The Exorcist, and then when I uh, when my daughter Meadow was when she was uh, two, I watched it for the first time after she'd been born, and I I was like, this is so much more harrowing to see now. Because now that you can envision yourself in the role of a parent, and you can you can kind of understand Ellen Burstyn's, uh, or, or you know, um, uh, what's Sam? It's what's her name? Uh, so no, no, the surname is McNeil. What's uh, Ellen Burstyn's name? Chris, Chris McNeil. McNeil. Yeah. So you can see Chris McNeil's anguish at what's going on with her daughter. You're like, if you, if you can't imagine how you would feel if you were a parent in that position. Yeah, I think when like you're like a teenager or something watching Exorcist. You don't really think about that part of it. No. You think about other things, and even uh, even if you don't have kids, once you get older, you start to kind of like emphasize with that more. You know what I mean? You're like, oh man, that'd be fucked up. So I think she's like a big part of the first movie, and I think uh, Karis is the other major part because it's his story of kind of confronting faith, and you could see yeah. that the first movie is a confrontation of faith, and there's evil. The nature of evil is definitely in there, like. Um, Particularly in the extended version, with the whole like yeah. conversation with um with Father Marin, like on the stairs that they have. Um, but I feel like this movie is taking up that framework of it and continuing and developing and exploring the idea of evil. You know. Well, interesting thing as well is that um, uh, the, so the, that scene where they were talking on the stairs that that was in, that was put back in at William Peter Blatty's insistence in the director's cut and it was something that he and uh, William Friedkin were really at, at odds about um when the uh, when the first film was uh, was shot i i i'm on the side of William Peter Blatty because i think that scene really rounds out the first film very very well i think you could remove i think you could stick with the first the the the, the original cut but you have to include that i would i would exclude the spider walk before i excluded the scene on the stairs yeah um but I completely agree with you. It's a continuation of the same theme. It's 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 a man struggling with faith and a man struggling. It's a man struggling to believe there's goodness in the world where he sees so much ugliness all the time. 
Well, I think you have an extra develop, extra layer of this movie and Kinderman because he's a Jew, Jewish, you know. So he's coming at it from a different perspective. And when you read like a lot of the stuff about Jewish um, ideas about evil, you know, um, they have a like there's a bunch of different conceptions of evil. And in the book, there's like a lot more exploration of some of those ideas. And he's like thinking about them, you know, like. And so it's an interesting perspective because it's kind. Of, he's like interacting with these Catholics and stuff like that, you know. And so he's kind of like questioning them, but but it's kind of like a uh, it's a friendly thing, you know what I mean? Like, but so he's like interacting with it, this, and it's kind of showing that inherently doesn't matter if you're Catholic or Jewish or whatever. It's kind of kind of coming down to the same types of um, ideas, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I would completely agree with you, and I, I think, I think it's uh, in many ways, it, uh, William Peter Blatty is very much bearing his soul on, uh, you know, in 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 both of the films, but especially in three, which is I think why he was so keen to direct it. Uh, I think he's probably relaying a lot of his own personal struggles, um, you know, because he was he was in, um, uh, so, so I know he was in Jesuit school where he was studying to be a Jesuit priest. Um, I don't believe that he, he he actually qualified. I think he dropped out before. Um, you know, he'd completed his studies, and then he and then he became a comedy writer, and then he wrote The Exorcist. But again, I think that the, a lot of his own personal struggles are are laid bare, or at least in some ways, you know, he's he's managed to kind of vent that through the the, the characters that he wrote in Legion and in uh, The Exorcist. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. You definitely feel you can see really hear his voice in this movie, and and um, you know. I think it's crazy that he only directed like two movies basically. Cause I mean, he, he did a really good job directing this movie. Like, yeah. but I do think, I do think it was very personal for him. I mean, he wrote it, he directed it. Like you could tell he put a lot of himself into it, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I've never actually watched the ninth configuration. I, I, and I, I keep meaning to, uh, to watch it, but I've, um, I think I might even have it here at home, but I've just never gotten around to seeing it, but it's a shame he didn't do more. Uh, as far as um, direction is concerned, because I mean, he did a really sensational job with this. Yeah, I never seen Night's Configuration either. I think it's on uh, in America at least. It's on Shutter, but I haven't watched it yet. I know that um, mm-hmm. Mike was uh, um, reading the Night's Configuration, the novel. I think um, like last year or something. I I never asked him what he's like what if he finished it, but because uh, yeah. I I think he watched the movie and stuff. He I think he said it was pretty good. But well, I, I it it stars if, again. I'm, I might be mistaken on this, but I believe it stars uh, George C. Scott as well. I think it has Jason Miller in it as well. I think. Yeah. Uh, and uh, again, Jason Miller for me is I I think he's such an un- underrated actor as well. He's he's just an incredible actor. Um, yeah. I know that he was, uh, you know, raving alcoholic, and I think apparently, like, really deep in the throes of his alcoholism uh, when they shot The Exorcist Three, which I think, in some ways, potentially almost helped the character in a way. He's <laughs> definitely, to borrow Mike's word, there's definitely a low life element to him in this one, <laughs> um, and it, uh, yeah, it, it it enhances the character. He's no longer the clean cut Karis from the first film. Um, and again, I'm I'm just looking now at IMDb. Uh, he didn't really star in a whole lot after The Exorcist Three. 
Um, I mean, he was in Rudy that came out in 1993. He was in a movie called Murdered Innocence that came out in 1996. Paradox Lake that came out in 2002. But nothing that I I really, I've never seen any of those movies and I don't really know much about them. No, I don't know anything about those. Like, I mean, I really haven't seen too much movies that he's in in general. I mean, I you know, obviously The Exorcist, Exorcist 3, but um, I can't think of anything else that... I know there's a couple other movies I've seen him in, but I can't think of them off the top of my head, you know? Yeah. I am wrong, by the way. George C. Scott was not in um, at the Ninth Configuration, but uh, Scott Wilson uh, of uh, Exorcist 3 fame was in there as well. So you've got Scott Wilson, you've got Jason Miller, both in Ninth Configuration. But I'm, de- I'm definitely going to watch that. Maybe that's maybe we should do an episode on that at some point down the road as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, we, 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 we both come at it fresh. Yeah, it'll be we like give our, we give our opinions. It'll be like the opposite of this one where we've both seen it a million times. <laughs> well, I, I've without any exaggeration, I've seen this movie maybe seventy or eighty times easily. It's not like not even. I, I'd, I'd say that's a very conservative estimate. Right. Yeah, it's like one of those movies you watch every year. Yeah. Well, I mean, for a period of time, I, I would watch it multiple times, <laughs> multiple <Right>. times a <laughs> year. So it's I've seen it many, many, many times over. Yeah, there's some movies that you watch a lot, like this one, Exorcist One. Um, like uh, I'm thinking, like Evil Dead's another one I've watched a lot. Um, you know, like Halloween, like the first Halloween. You know, uh, yeah, there's definitely those movies that you've seen that one. You know, we've we've all seen like, uh, we, you know, do you watch a lot? And I, this one's definitely up there for me as well. Yeah, my um, my my worst vice, as far as that's concerned, is Predator. I've seen I've seen Predator easily north of a hundred times. <laughs> the, the first time I ever watched it, I was twelve years old, and I, I rewound and watched it three times over in the same day. So, <laughs> so I was completely obsessed with that movie. It was Bloodsport, and then when I was allowed to watch Predator, Predator su- supplanted Bloodsport as my favorite movie. Yeah, I, um. I watched Predator pretty young because uh, my dad let me watch Alien when I was like seven or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, because like I already, I mean, I was already like real obsessed. Like I could, I, there was like the toys and stuff you could get. Yeah, so I was like obsessed with like I thought the toys were the coolest thing you know they had back in the day and of like Alien versus Predator and stuff. So my dad was just kind of well, might as well watch it. So we watched actually Alien one like when I was like seven, watched Aliens, and then I think I watched predator when i was probably like eight or nine you know yeah so yeah predator is like like one of those great movies i haven't watched as much as you but have you heard of uh the alien tv series that, that's in uh development at the moment and apparently is being overseen by noah hawley who did fargo and i'm a massive massive fan of fargo it's the first three seasons full season i don't like but the first three seasons i think are absolutely incredible and I think if anybody can create that, uh, can create serialized television that takes place inside of a defined, a predefined universe that, you know, this guy can go in and he can interpret and he can refresh, I think he'd be, he'd be able to do, to do an amazing job. And my understanding is, as far as the tone of the series, they're kind of going for a, a blend between Alien and Aliens. And I think the, the story is meant to be centering around Newt um, from Aliens. So um, yeah, it could be. I'm. I, I. I generally speaking, I've got a lot of faith in this guy because I was very skeptical about Fargo. It's a. I absolutely adore the film, 
So when the TV sh- uh, series came out, I, I really sort of watched the first episode out of morbid curiosity. But I mean, 10 minutes in, I was totally hooked. Yeah, I've heard about the show, but I didn't know who was doing it or anything. And um, I think it's great. Like, I think, I think um, Alien uh, as a franchise is one of the ones where I'm definitely down with them to pick up like where aliens left off and just ignore the rest you know like yeah i agree uh like we should have like i really wanted to see that neil blumenkamp movie with sigourney weaver and and mike um what's it mike, michael bean and everybody you know like yeah that's i wanted to see them come back and and play those characters again and just pretend like alien 3 never happened like because i thought it was total bullshit when in alien 3 when they kill them at the beginning of the movie like because the original movie you were supposed to get for Alien Three was like, um, them them like coming coming back and like this like big confrontation with Will and Utani and stuff, and it would have been a much better movie than what we got than the kind of horse shit that we got. You know what I mean? So it's like I'm pretty okay with them coming back and doing that. So I mean, I'm I'm okay with them doing a new story like taking up where Newt with Newt or something like that. Kind of like yeah. um. Uh, do you ever read the old Dark Horse comics where they they took they were like in Newt's point of view like originally? no no I know I, 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 so I I think the only Dark Horse um, comics that I collected I collected um, the Darkness that was Dark Horse right or was that Top Cow that's uh, Top Cow I think yeah I collected the Darkness and I collected Witchblade I think the, the, those are both Top Cow actually yeah so I retract that I didn't collect any Dark Horse comics <laughs> yeah Dark Horse did. You know, back in the late 80s and 90s, they did all the uh, Alien. They had Alien and Predator and um, Terminator, like all those comics. And um, mm-hmm. um, they did, like, I, um, my friend has, like, collections of the, the uh, they re- reissued, like, all the Alien um, Dark Horse comics from the 80s. And then um, they did a whole series, like, that was um, set, between is set after aliens the first movie because that's the only movie, you know newest movie that came out and at first they weren't allowed to use ellen ripley as a character for some weird like copyright reason so they set the movie set the series from news point of view and um and it was really great and then later on like ellen was finally able to they were able to use her and she comes back and um like it's a really great series and it's basically like uh, a big part of it's them trying to stop the aliens from reaching earth and all those kinds of stuff and it's kind of like apocalyptic in a lot of ways and uh it's very good and um yeah i like i like a lot of the the dark horse stuff they did like the predator was great the aliens versus predator was great um they used to come with the action figures that they would release for aliens vs predator they would have like little like comics in each one of them that you could use that you could read yeah which are cool and um uh i have some of the terminator books as well from that they did which some of them those are pretty good as well but yeah no i um i i i, I never we would so anytime you wanted comics like that in south africa um you know which if anyone that has listened into the necrosphere that's the that's where i uh that's where i grew up um you you needed to import everything so i i, I don't even think i was aware of them um, yeah i I'm... i did i i do have a pretty hefty comic book collection i need to actually get the stuff shipped over from south africa because i've got everything is still with backing boards and you know in plastic and stuff like that it's like really like mint condition stuff i've got the whole uh, like the first probably 
30 issues, I think, of the Daredevil reboot, like the whole Kevin Smith run, um, and then uh, everything that kind of happened subsequent when Brian Michael Bendis took over the series. I've got that. Uh, I've got Ultimate Spider-Man. I've got Spawn. I've got Hellspawn. I've got Sam and Twitch. Those are probably my favorite comics. Yeah. No, um, I, I love all the Spawn. I love like uh, the medieval Spawn. Was like one of the dark well, Sam and Twitch is a a series. I'm I'm very surprised they never ever picked up, um, and uh, you know turned that into a TV show because it's it, it it would be perfect for a TV show. Yeah, I never read the comics, but I know those characters. Oh, the the, the comics were excellent. It it had very much a feel like um, it was kind of Mind Hunter, um, Mind Hunter esque uh, and Seven esque, but in the set in the spawn universe right Where you have uh, demons but and shit. <laughs> yeah but you know if you think about it from a like you know if they were able to pull off something like um gotham then i definitely think that they can you know they, they will be able to do something like this and, and do it really successfully i think it's the same for me as with dread i mean dread to me is a firstly an incredible movie yeah secondly i have no fucking idea why they never did a um well instead of bothering to try and get a sequel made just do a dread tv show i know that was probably even harder but you could do a serialized dread tv show i think and it would do unbelievably well especially if you kept the same tone from the dread film get carl urban in as dread because i don't think anybody else can do it as well as he does um but you know if you have strong writing like imagine uh writing with sort of the depth of something like the wire but set in the dread universe that would be fucking brilliant i agree yeah i love that dread movie and uh i know that there was a while where there were talks about there being like a netflix series for it and I yeah they were gonna do a, so they were gonna do a series called mega city um and it was gonna be it would it would feature dread but it would be set in mega city and this was meant to i think the pilot was meant to shoot in 2019 so i don't know whether it's it's died on the vine um or what the deal is yeah, because I would love to see more uh, stories with with him as uh, Judge Dredd because he was perfect. And that movie oh, was like... He, he was amazing. That was a perfect representation of um, of Dredd as a series. And I think what was cool about that movie was very simple in a way because the whole movie is set in the same, like, you know, horrible apartment block. You know what I mean? Like, it's just him going up the, le- up the levels of this apartment block, you know what I mean, fighting people. Yeah. And it's like a perfect, like, it's... Simple. I know that was filmed in uh, South Africa as well. It was filmed in Cape Town. Yeah, you actually see some of the, the 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 shitty cars and stuff, and like some of the spots you can kind of recognize if you know Cape Town very well. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it was it was it was shot in Cape Town. It was. I mean, it's a uh, it's an awesome movie. Absolutely awesome. It's a. Th- th- I agree with you. It works because it's simple. Uh, it also works because it doesn't stray away whatsoever from the. Um, like from the tone of the comic book, I don't think. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, it's really gritty. It's really relentless. It's it's violence. It's unapologetic. Um, you know, and unsurprisingly, uh, you know, got a considerable woke backlash. But <laughs> that's well, probably part of why I love it so much. I think uh, I think that they don't um, uh, they don't realize that the world that they're trying to force us into is that world that's in that movie. That movie. <laughs> well, I was about to say. I mean, Mega City One started. I was San Francisco, like downtown San Francisco, starting to look a little like Mega City One. Yeah, and I pretty mean, soon the judges are going to be the only thing that can clean up the streets. Uh, pretty much any Democrat city is turning into into Mega City One because it's like 
uh, you know, it's the same idea. It's like only the writ, you know, I mean, the whole concept of Judge Dredd is that that the future is like this uh, automation has completely taken a place of everybody's jobs. So nobody has any money. They're all just living in these like horrible tenement apartment blocks. And uh, and the rich, the mega rich, you know, have all the power and all this like amazing technology and stuff. But the rest of us are like living like fucking scabs. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) and uh, so everything's just rife with crime, you know, because they have no other option but crime. And it's like, yeah, that that sounds like the future we're heading towards right now. Well, you've got the option to uh, commit crime or uh, become a judge. I'll be uh, signing up. I'll be one of the first to sign up. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? What, what's he, he? His gun is called the Lawgiver or the Lawbringer or something like that. I think, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. That's I would, as, as long as they fit me with the Lawbringer and they say, you know, go go wild. <laughs> go uh, go hunt some scumbags. <laughs> yeah. But he's but uh, the, the the they nailed it with that movie like like properly nailed it um yeah. the the opening scene where he's having that confrontation with the uh with the guy who's kidnapped the the woman and then he says to him you can offer him life in prison with no parole in exchange for his surrender and the guy <laughs> says to him uh you know that you know call that a negotiation blah 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 <laughs> and then he says um negotiations over <laughs> him up yeah <laughs> It reminds me of a RoboCop as well, like that kind of. Yeah, Robo. I watched RoboCop recently, uh, and I was just like, I hadn't watched Dude, it in a little while, and I just, brilliant. It's yeah, it's such an amazing movie. Like, and I remember thinking that the last time I watched it too, but it, it had been like probably it'd been a minute since I watched it last time. I was like, why? Yeah. Why was it so long since I watched this movie? It's fucking amazing. <laughs> well, it's 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 really really funny. Um, it has like so much like satirical stuff in which we- feels weirdly very relevant now. Um, it's got one of the greatest villains ever. Um, yeah, <laughs> Kurt <Kerwood> Smith. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's an awesome movie, absolutely awesome. I mean, again, they lost the plot with that movie really badly, in my view, from RoboCop two. Um, although I've had I've got a lot of friends that said go back and rewatch RoboCop two. You'll you'll probably enjoy it now. Yeah, I haven't seen RoboCop two and three since I was a kid because I remember not liking them when I was a kid. So, yeah, <laughs> you, know, you know, like, uh, yeah, I love RoboCop and uh, Kerwitz is great. He's like, bitches leave. That part's like immortal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, my favorite two lines: the bitches leave, and when they're being chased by by uh, the police, and he's he takes the dude he's supposed to be his friend, and he says like, "Can you fly, Bobby?" Pushes <laughs> him out the back of the car. Yeah, that part is amazing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely awesome. All right, brother. Awesome Perfect. catching up with you again. You too, bro. I hope you and have a we'll, good night. Yeah, definitely. So we, we'll we'll do another episode for sure on... I'll leave it to you to, 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 to spill the beans maybe in the next couple of weeks, but we know what it's going to be. Yeah. Uh, and then I think we need to do a ninth configuration episode as well, for sure. Yeah. We'll do... it'll, it'll, it'll motivate me to watch it. So. Yeah, we'll have to do that in the near future as well. Yeah. You know, next few uh you know, we'll do the next one that we have first and then we'll hit the ninth configuration. So Yeah, that go. sounds good. All right, dude. Awesome. Great to see you again and uh great to see you uh alive and kicking and healthy and we'll uh we'll talk soon. Sounds great. I'll talk to you later, Jackie. Have a good night. All right, my man. Take care. Bye bye. Bye.